why why do we keep on sort of folding right to this republican argument that is actually not even it's not rooted in reality it's not rooted in economics it's actually rooted in hatred it's rooted in racism so why do we as democrats keep on bending over to this argument yeah it's very hard to be a world leader and say that you care about humanitarianism around the world and other countries that treat people poorly when you're doing that to people on your southern border what up world welcome back to another episode of the amera podcast episode 127 we made it <laughs> sure did we have a very special guest on with us today mr marco dorado from colorado currently living in washington he has earned recently his master's degree in public administration at the University of Washington. And we are here to talk about DACA today. And he has recently, coincidentally, did we plan this? I don't know. Had an article <laughs> published in uh, the El Seminario about the DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And yeah, Marco, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Hey, Blake, I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me and inviting me today to, to share a little bit about myself and a little bit about what it means to be a documented American. Woo. Awesome. Well, yeah. We're happy to have you here with us today. Uh, also on the pod are two of the original crew, Mr. John Kelly out in Denver. How are you? Good. Good. We only got a little bit of orangeized air from the northern fires <laughs> today. Just a little bit. Yeah, up here in the mountains, it's uh, not quite as bad, but it's starting to roll in. And John Anderson, also in the Denver metro area. How are you today? Oh, you know, I'm uh, hanging in there. For those of you who are listening in the future, which is everybody, which is still my favorite joke on the podcast. <laughs> there are Nailed it every time. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> there are 14 days till the election. We have a fortnight. We have two weeks to get this asshole out of office. So please make sure that you are registered to vote. Please make sure your family is registered to vote. Please make sure that you have a plan to vote. Also, something uh, that we are actually – I was talking with uh, Nelson, who's another semi-regular on the podcast today. Uh, contributor. If you go to Vote I think Save you could America, call him a contributor. He's a contributor, let's say. Uh, if you go to Vote Save America and then input your address, they will have your uh, ballot there on the computer. So if you're going to go in, you can save it on your phone. It allows you to go through and, and look at all the issues. I find it extremely useful, especially in Colorado with our ballot initiatives. One thing that it does that's so useful is it'll, in a sentence, tell you what a yes vote means and what a no vote means on every ballot measure that we have at least statewide in Colorado. So I literally had that up next to me as I filled out my mail-in ballot. I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, surprise, it's a left-leaning organization, so just a caveat there. But I thought they did a good job of um, mostly explaining what both views were on a particular ballot measure. So yeah. Vote Save America, put in your address, very highly Love recommended. Yeah. Great, great, great idea, because some of those those propositions are very confusing the way that Holy they're worded. Bananas. I can see, I could definitely see people getting confused. I know I had to read a few of them a couple times over yeah. to make yep. sure that I was understanding it correctly. So, you know, if you're going to go to the polling place, make sure you, like, take a look at the propositions before you get there. For sure. One of the reasons I'm really happy to have you here today, Marco, is because uh, you've 
formed a pretty solid opinion about a specific senator here in Colorado. <laughs> and uh, it's it, it strikes, it sounds like, quite close to you personally. And it is election season and his seat is up for um, re-election. So we're talking about Mr. Cory Gardner, in case those of you haven't caught on how much we love him here on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I sat next to him on a plane one time. It was great. Did you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they kicked the elderly couple off to give them the seat. But that's another story <laughs> altogether. Let's just say I wasn't happy. different podcast. Yeah. yeah. Corey Gardner has not had a very good track record for uh, supporting uh, people under DACA, protected under DACA. And, in fact, he's, he's v- voted pretty consistently with Donald Trump. He's helped support the, the wall down on the border. Um, a lot of his actions have, despite what his campaign ads may say, are completely hypocritical. So I guess, Marco, to start, what motivated you to get involved? Is it your background as a documented American? And what's motivated you to study what you study in public administration? Yeah, so I'll start with kind of what motivated me to write this piece very clearly in opposition to Senator Gardner and in support of former Governor John Hickenlooper. And ultimately what it comes down to is at the end of the day, right, like inaction on immigration, whether it's comprehensive immigration reform or a pathway to citizenship for the 700,000 DACA recipients, 15,000 of who call Colorado home, Inaction on any of those issues, apart from the very real impact that 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 those laws and those policies have on the individuals like me who were who would be very directly impacted, inaction on that actually impacts everyone in our community, right? Whether you're undocumented or not, whether you're an immigrant or not, the fact that the people that we elect to go to Washington refuse to act on any of this. And not only refuse to act on any of this, they choose to stand and be complicit as our communities are torn apart, our families are torn apart. That that behavior is harmful, obviously, for the immigrant community, but it's behavior that's harmful for our communities as Americans, right? Because DACA recipients, undocumented immigrants, we are not this person that the right sort of tries to paint paint us out to be, right? DACA recipients right. and undocumented you're cer- immigrants. You're certainly not all a bunch of rapists and drug dealers like Trump said about blanket statement during exactly. the campaign. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. And so the reason I wrote it is because at the end of the day, right, we need to send someone to Washington who gets that, someone who gets the fact that we are, we are your friends, we are your classmates, we are your colleagues, we are your neighbors, and we are a part of your community, whether you like it or not, right? That is the reality of who we are in this country as as documented Americans, as undocumented Americans. And so the reason, again, I I sort of decided to write this article was because I just I I have a voice and I don't and I want to make sure that especially people who have the privilege of voting understand kind of what's on the line as someone who can't vote, but someone who has been so impacted by the last definitely the last four years, but then even the last six years of congressional inaction on immigration reform, making sure people know what's at stake, right? And what hurts me is ultimately also going to hurt the rest of our communities. Um, If we don't put someone in in the Senate to represent the interests of all Coloradans. So, Marco, you said you are now uh, doing work for the National Development Council, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So I graduated in June of this year with my master's in public administration from the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington. And while I was in graduate school, I started working for a national nonprofit called the National Development Council, um, which is really focused on community economic development. And so the work that I get to focus on is uh, sort of split into two categories, um, supporting small businesses in the client communities that I work in and so on the West Coast, and then also providing support for the development of affordable housing, again, in client communities across the West the West. Uh, region of the United States. Wow, such key policy areas for those communities. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a really cool opportunity, again, to, one, I think, for me, pursue something that I'm passionate about, um, leverage the fact that because of DACA, I can legally work in this country, and then three, give back to a place that I've received, that I've obtained so much from, right? Give back to the country that when I was two years old, um, that I sort of became an American and, and, and sort of give back to the country that I, the only country I know is home uh, and the country that I want to give back to because of everything that it's given to me. Yeah. And I think that's such an important aspect about this whole conversation surrounding DACA, right? Is the fact that it, it was so many children that were, that were brought here. They had no choice that they were coming here or not. It's the only country they ever know. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, on top of that, and we can get into the the, the policies uh, if we want a little bit more about what what DACA goes into. But I just thought that when it was uh, initially proposed, the ideas that were there as providing a pathway to citizenship were great, and it made people better citizens. Right? Those type there's there's things that are within DACA that ordinary white citizens who don't have to fight for their rights in this country would never have to go through. <laughs> you know? Well, it's really, it's, and, it's fascinating, right? So uh, I think you touched on two things that I kind of want to make sure that we touch on, right? Like back when DACA was uh, announced by the Obama administration through an executive order, it was still, we were still in a world of possibility, of immigration reform possibility, right? Like at that point, DACA's announced, there's still some hope that Congress will pass comprehensive immigration reform. And so we were actually like, we, it didn't feel like we were fighting for breadcrumbs. And now what we've gotten to, right, is we're not even sure if we're able to fight for DACA anymore, right? Like there's no way we're going to be fighting for comprehensive immigration reform. And if anything, any sort of policy, whether it's through the legislative branch or through the executive action, has sort of been um, gutted, Right whether it's through the courts or because of a lack of political will, but even DACA now, right? Like DACA is in no way what it was when it was instituted in 2013 in many, many ways. And that's because of one, this administration's refusal to adhere to the Supreme Court's decision in June that upholds DACA as it was first introduced. And two, members of the Senate that refused to actually stand up to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in Washington to actually defend members of our community. And another interesting fact, the second part about DACA, right, is that when I first applied for DACA, there was a, a list of requirements that you had to meet, right? Like you had to be in this country before you were 16. You had to be in the country before a specific date. You had to be able to prove that you've been in this country for that many years, right? Whether it was through school records, bank statements, whatever you had. And so you had to submit a pretty comprehensive application to uh, U.S. Uh, Customs and Immigration Services, to USCIS, and pay a $500 fee. 
And then what happened there is then you also had to provide them, they would do a background check and, prov- and you had to provide them your fingerprints, right? So you'd go into a USCIS field office, provide them your fingerprints, and then basically down the line, you'd be approved for a two-year work permit, which with it comes a social security number, and a two-year reprieve for deportation. That's where the deferred action comes in. And so basically what I've been doing for the better part of the last 10 years of my life is giving the government $500 every year, every two years to basically renew my ability to stay in this country and work in this country. In addition to like the taxes I already pay and things like that. Completely unfair. And so when you say that, like, this is the stretch that we're like the lengths that we'll go to, right. To prove that we want to be here and just, uh, have our own shot at the American dream, whatever that is. Right. We'll go, we'll go those lengths to prove that. And I think that where we're at now is that a lot of people refuse to acknowledge that, which is a problem. So, Marco, um, let's say we win the House. Let's say we retain the – or I'm sorry. We win the Senate. We retain the House. uh, We get the uh, presidency. I'm curious what your – you know, a lot of people want to do a COVID bill or maybe we do a democracy bill, whatever that looks like. Where do you see – immigration reform or any action on DACA in those priorities? And, and what is your case for maybe making that like a very high priority, especially with your background and uh, your economic background? Yeah, you know, I think that's a hard question and not a hard question to answer, right? Because at the end of the day, I think that if, if ideal scenario, right, take the House, the Senate and the executive branch, I think like the overarching priority is going to have to be how do we provide relief for all Americans? And my definition of all Americans is everyone in this country, right? Who's been impacted by COVID-19, both um, from a public health perspective, but also from an economic perspective. Central to that though, is you can't exclude DACA recipients and undocumented immigrants from any of this relief because of the fact that we are a part of this country. We are a part of this economy, right? Like you see the pictures on the internet during the wildfires, during the COVID pandemic, who is picking the fruit and the vegetables that we all eat, right? And so at the, end, so at the end of the day, I think that like I am rational and logical enough that the pecking order has to be COVID relief for everyone. But in that COVID relief, right, we have to be bold and be willing to say, well, everyone means everyone, right? I think down the line, I would love to see a, comprehens- a comprehensive immigration reform bill that one, provides a pathway to citizenship to the 12 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. Because at, at the end of the day, right, like I've wrestled a lot with that question as well of like, is it more politically feasible to say no pathway to citizenship, but a pathway to legalization, to legal permanent residency, right? But I even struggle with that because at the end of the day, that is the most un-American thing that we could be fighting for, right? To effectively create a class of citizens um, that are relegated Se- to a secondary that, exactly yeah, yeah agreed, agreed. that are that are relegated to yeah. a secondary political class really arbitrarily right we still pay our taxes we still contribute in the same way as any other american and so really i would love to see a bill that includes comprehensive immigration reform and also a bill that creates either stronger accountability or re-envisions the way that we treat immigrants coming into our nation from the southern border, right? Because I think it's despicable that any American has stood by and said what 
what's happening at the southern border is okay. Yeah. Anything, anything less than a horrible humanitarian crisis that's been perpetuated by the leaders of the Republican Party is just you, you can't you can't say it any other way. Exactly. Exactly. So a long-winded answer to your question is I think I'm not going to kid myself that there are things that need to be taken care of for the broader good of the country that I think will likely take precedent over things like DACA and immigration reform. As long as immigrants are included in that as well, and as long as there's a plan for comprehensive immigration reform from this administration, from the next Congress, from Senate, I think that's what we need to be doing. And that's what, as progressives and Democrats, we should be advocating for. If if you wouldn't mind, um, can you talk a little bit, like personally, what it would mean for you to have a pathway to citizenship as opposed to some other form of legal recognition that we might create otherwise? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind as you ask that question is living in a golden cage, right? Because I think at the end of the day, I'm very aware of the privileges that I've been able to gain, relatively speaking, growing up in America, being able to go to college, being able to go get my master's, right? Like I have, because of the American promise, right? And the American opportunity have been able to gain relative privilege compared to people who were probably in my position, but in my in the country I was born in, Mexico, right? And so I think that to answer your question of like, what, it, what would it mean to have a pathway to citizenship? One, it would be finally being able to leave this golden cage, right? Not that I don't like America, but at the end of the day, right? Like, it's very sad to realize that for the last 30 years, there's been almost like the last 29 years, 28 years, there's been this cloud over my life. And I've almost been bound, right, by this arbitrary, um, by, by border, right, that I can't leave because if I leave, I can't come back in. And again, that to me just is, flies in the face of one logic, but also of the, Ameri- the American ideals and values um, of, one, individual independence um, and sort of the ability of want to dictate your own future, right? And dictate what you want to do. Uh, And so I think, one, the pathway to citizenship is like being able to leave this golden cage and everything that comes with it. And I think, two, at the end of the day, exercising the fundamental American right of being able to vote in the society that I am sort of a part of, in the society that I pay taxes in, the society that I've willingly by choice, right, entered into a, a contract with, right? I've I provided my part of the social contract contract. I believe anyone that provides their part then should have access to the other side of the social contract that comes with the benefits of being recognized uh, as a citizen. You're a de facto citizen and so we should make it uh, we should make sure that you are also a de jure citizen. Right. Uh, yeah, right. Like I, I pay my taxes. I pay my taxes every year. I pay my payroll taxes every month, every every two weeks. I basically, basically, not only that, I also pay a tax, right, to be able to like legally work in this country and be in this country. And so there are so many things that are already just American in name that we're missing the, 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 the American sort of on paper for myself and the other 700,000 DACA recipients, but then even for the millions of undocumented people. Or just critical uh, to our economy, to to our communities, uh, and I think to our fabric as a country. Yeah, yeah, hundred hundred percent. I mean, I think, and it's really important for 
uh, I, I would argue the citizens in Colorado, but also around the country that, you know, have, have maybe taken a step back and haven't thought about these issues as much over the last year, especially, you know, COVID's been crazy. I mean, the, the whatever you want to call Donald Trump of the White House, <laughs> anything <laughs> from smoldering shitstorm to uh, the literal apocalypse on the news media every day. I mean, there's a lot to think about, um, <laughs> but, you know, it, we need to take a step back and reevaluate what we want the values of this country to be, right? And if you are an important aspect to a community, you're a taxpaying citizen, there's no reason that you shouldn't be allowed to gain a pathway to citizenship relatively easily and be allowed to vote. I mean, it's, it's unconscious, unconsciousable, in my opinion, and it's completely undemocratic. And well, I think what's really interesting is like obviously is like growing up in this country, right? Like especially I think after the 2016 election, I think that was the first time that I actually that it hit me, right? That the way that our institutions are built, obviously they're built to to, to in theory weather the test of time and the test of change and and whatever that way that might look. But I think after 2016, I realized, right? Like this one person can come in and just upend everything on a whim, right? And that's exactly what we've seen over the last four years, upending of our institutions, of our trust in these institutions. I think that the only sort of saving grace or the only sort of silver lining there is when we end up on the other side of this, hopefully in two weeks, how do we sort of leverage that to reimagine the way that we view these institutions, right? Because I think even the argument of how do we create an easy path to citizenship for people five years ago? It was like, oh, no, well, we have these agencies and we have these processes and we have to follow that. The last four years have proved that all of that is arbitrary, right? Like things are the way they are, not because it's the right way for them to be. It's because somebody showed up and decided that they wanted it to be the way that way. Yeah. Right. And so I think Very good point. the opportunity that we have moving forward, if we do win in two weeks, right, is. There's no reason why we have to go back to how it was just because somebody said it was that way, right? How do we think innovatively, progressively about some of these challenges, including immigration reform, to really get to a point where it's like, no, we're doing it and it's going to be easy because it makes sense. And we're not going to be scapegoating people because it's politically advantageous because at this point, I don't know, I don't know how that could be politically advantageous, especially for progressives and for Democrats. Do you have any uh, pet projects? that you want to see happen? Like, what's your what's your wish list? I To be honest with you, what's really sad is I don't know that I thought about pet projects or my wish list because my answer to that question would probably be more at the state level. Um, but I think us. that, like, what is that? Give it to us. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think you'll, you've seen this ac at, across state governments across the country, right? Like, there is – the states cannot dictate immigration policy – but they can dictate policies that are very much adjacent to immigration policy, right? And so you've seen that in a state like Colorado, in a state like Washington, in-state tuition for undocumented students. Um, the state of Washington offers driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants. The state of Colorado does, but that could be improved. And so there's a lot of policies, right, that states can undertake to strengthen protections, even at the state level, that, don't, that aren't necessarily comprehensive immigration reform but that are very much adjacent and can protect our immigrant communities. I think at the federal level, I think it's just time that, uh, one, we pass a DREAM Act, but citizenship is not a right that should be 
exclusive to people who have been able to benefit from going to school and sort of fitting this model minority myth. Citizenship should be accessible to anyone that's in this country willing to be an American, willing to pay their taxes, do what's right to be a member of our society. Right. And so just because I'm in college doesn't mean that that I went to college, that doesn't mean that I'm more deserving than someone who doesn't have a college degree, but also finds themselves as being undocumented. Right. So let's pass the DREAM Act and let's pass comprehensive immigration reform. The DREAM Act was introduced in 2001. Right. Like John McCain was one of the architects of the DREAM Act, one of the co-sponsors. Like what has changed in the last 20 years is just. It's almost unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's a hardening on the right for sure, and a xenophobia that has pushed people on the right. Um, you know, it's also a very salient political issue that can be used as a card by uh, Republicans on the national scale. They can put that down pretty hard. You know, yes. that type of xenophobic language, that type of anti-immigrant language, and it rallies their base. And so they know that they don't necessarily have to move the ball too far one way or the other, unless the tide seems to change with what the Democrats are doing, and then they'll play that card, and that's what they do. Um, and, you know, we should they should stop using it like that, but that's, uh, unfortunately, I think, the political reality. Well, it's really interesting, right, because uh, back in November of last year, I was in Washington when the Supreme Court, in Washington, D.C., when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on DACA. And it's really interesting because I was there with, few thousand DACA recipients, advocates, um, a big group of people basically protesting in front of the Supreme Court as oral arguments were taking place uh, regarding DACA. And what's really fascinating is that at this point, right, like I remember growing up and in high school, like nobody knew I was undocumented until I was in college, right? Because I wasn't going to actively tell someone that I was an undocumented immigrant, especially at a time when Especially then, right? The overarching narrative is like, oh, these people are illegal aliens breaking the law. Um, Fast forward to last year, November of 2019, you have thousands of people on the steps of the Supreme Court, major corporations like Apple, Microsoft, the big tech companies, all of these companies, basically not only putting out statements in support of DACA, but actually actively trying to lobby our members of Congress and our members of the U.S. Senate to pass a a Dream Act, to pass a fix for DACA, right? Because we weren't sure what the Supreme Court was going to say. And really what that speaks to, right, is that, like, Democrats have realized this shouldn't be an issue. Business has realized we shouldn't be deporting people that we have spent money educating and who are Americans, right? And so really where it lands us, right, is like... Makes no economic sense. (laughs) why, Why do we keep on sort of folding, right, to this Republican argument that is actually not even it's not rooted in reality it's not rooted in economics it's actually rooted in hatred it's rooted in racism so why do we as democrats keep on bending over to this argument and so i think getting back to the question about your wish list, like let's get to congress and let's actually be a little bit um more aggressive about how we go about this because compromising in the past has gotten us nowhere and it's gotten us to the point now where we still don't have a comprehensive immigration reform you still have 11 million documented immigrants and I have 700,000 of us whose life is in limbo and we pay $500 every year now to the federal government to, right. to renew our ability to work in this country and to not be deported. Yeah. Some people might even argue that's a form of almost financial servitude to force you to keep paying that. 
over and over again, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> but hey, on the other hand, you know, there's a pretty cool wall that's being built in the middle of the <laughs> desert. You know. So. so Marco, you're living in Washington, and, and last year Washington became a sanctuary state as a kind of a reaction to what was happening around the country with uh, immigration and customs enforcement. We mentioned it earlier. A lot of people listening to this podcast pay attention to it, but we know we all know that the Trump administration has been uh, determined to undo Obama-era policy and DACA being one of those items. Do you have interest in reforming ICE or defunding it? What's your stance with immigration customs enforcement? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of going back to my point earlier, right, about like, one, it's clearly a fractured organization, right? Because one, you think about all of the contracting that they, contracting out that they do of prison services, right? And so at the end of the day, like, again, violating people's rights through this organization, that's government-sanctioned violation of people's rights. And so I think that the conversation about, like, defunding and the conversation around, like, what to do with ICE is a very salient one, right? Because... At the end of the day, the organization is no longer doing what it was meant, intended and meant to do, right? And let's be very clear that the deportation of immigrants, and I would say that the inhumane deportation of immigrants wasn't as big of a problem under Obama, but regardless of that, he was the deporter-in-chief, right? He deported more people than George W. Bush did in his tenure as president, right? Yep. And so I think that at the end of the day, we can't lie to ourselves as like progressives and say, oh, it's all bad under Trump when it was also kind of like one of my uncles was deported under Trump, under uh, Obama, right? Who was not a criminal, who was literally going to work and was rounded up and sent back to Mexico. Um, but I think getting back to the point of like, what do you do with ICE and, and, and the department is I think that as progressives, we again, we start demanding like the way that we oversee this agency, the way that this agency is structured, like has not is not good, right? And so what are we doing to restructure it, to change it, to eliminate it, um, to bring it back to what it was intended to be? Because it is, it's not what it was intended to be, and that's only accelerated in the last four years to, ter to, to turning into a machine for human suffering. Yeah. Maybe we should just break up DHS, generally speaking. Just saying. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's... I think, especially given like everything happening in the world right now, you start to lose track and you start to normalize it, right? Which is what the last four years have sort of done is to start to normalize some of this behavior and some of this... Um, Radicalism? Yeah, inhumane treatment of other humans. That is like stands in the... That, that's is a slap in the face to American ideals, I think. It's, yeah, it's very hard to be a world leader and say that you care about humanitarianism around the world and other countries that treat people poorly when you're doing that to people on your southern border. And I yeah. think we talk a lot about like humanitarianism without sometimes like obviously it is a good in and of itself and we shouldn't have to defend it. You should just be a moral person. But us being a moral leader in the world by us, I mean the United States, it makes the United States more prosperous by giving us better trade deals, more access to different markets, things like that. It also makes us a lot safer because we can have partnerships with other intelligence agencies. It also, uh, if we are not acting in a humane way, it opens up our troops to the same kind of uh, uh, inhumane treatment. And so it is not 
just a moral question, even though that should settle it. It is also an economic question, and it's also a national security question. And so being good also means being safe and being prosperous. So it's really, really important we return to that type of, you know, like Reagan ideal. Uh, to, and speaking of Reagan, he, he – <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, hey, the last man to pass comprehensive immigration reform, right? And so True. there True. is True. there is a, a – strain in Republican and GOP thought that that harkens back to this. And I think it harkens back to this in a lot of ways because of the prosperity question and the national security question. So this is this should not be a um shouldn't be partisan. Uh, it shouldn't be a one sh- party yeah, versus it, the other. It, yeah, it exactly. It, it shouldn't be a difficult question for us to answer. Well even along along the Reagan lines, right? You have Rick Perry who in the early two thousands uh uh implemented in state tuition for undocumented students in Texas. Right. Right. So that's always been a bipartisan issue. You would have never known that when he ran for president, though. No, exactly. Well, I think, didn't he, in 2016, I I think he said something favorable about immigration, about immigration reform, and just got slaughtered for it, if I remember correctly. It might have been in 12, it might have been in 16, but I do remember he was pro immigration. I would have guessed 12. A debate, and then he got annihilated by the Republicans. And, And you actually. Unfortunately, Mitt Romney, one of his differentiators against his last – I forget who his like last opponent was. But he ran around the right to them in immigration, uh, yeah. which was a, a really, really unfortunate strategic decision on his part. Which is also, again, like – and this is now veering away from like the immigration conversation, right? But it's like – it just kills me sometimes, right, when Mitt Romney will stand up stand up to do what's right under the Trump administration, right? But it's like, yeah, man, I have no, I don't find the need to like applaud what you're doing or commend you for standing up when like you opened the doors to this, right? Like let's not forget that he was uh, advocating for self-deportation when he was running for president, right? Yes. And look, I get it. People can change their minds. But at the end of the day, don't change your mind without a recognition of the damage that you helped create. And sort of the beast that you helped unleash. Yeah. And I think without doing that and without being self-critical about your own past decisions, it's it's kind of a, a, a bullshit turn yeah. anyway. <laughs> it's one totally. it's one that's hard to take seriously. That's what exactly. I mean, it's performative, right? Like that is oh, that is what is next to performative in the dictionary. Exactly. <laughs> and I also and, and listen, I also think that this applies to Democrats, right? Like as Democrats, there just has to be a point where we sort of don't budge on our on our position, right? And I think a lot of the time as Democrats, what we've done is we've budged in the name of compromise. Well, let's realize that like at a certain point, we can compromise day and night and we're just compromising away our values and our goals because a lot of the times the compromise gets us very little, gets us breadcrumbs. Especially dealing with Mitch McConnell and company, uh, the, the the compromise is never we're not dealing with an honest actor exactly you can compromise with honest actors and come to a good solution and that's the ideal of america right is you have a bunch of people who are arguing what they believe is best and we're going to land in the middle but mitt romney and donald trump their idea of compromise is surrender 
And so the only way to do that is to stand your ground. The only way to respond or you surrender, which is not an acceptable uh, outcome. And so, you know, this is it, it gets interesting, like with the uh, Supreme Court argument, which is we, we had a podcast about that uh, last week. Or sure did. Yep. Last last podcast we talked about that. But Marco, I'm interested in what you think about that. What would what would you do to reform the court, if anything? Whew, that's another hard one, right? Like, <laughs> well, we we spent a whole hour on it last week, and we didn't come to any type <laughs> yeah. of con. I, uh, I, I don't know exactly what I would do to reform the court. I think that one thing that so I was in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, right when ballots dropped, and I was helping my sister in law fill out her ballot because she can vote, right? But she's not as like. Um, she's not as informed or, um, she's not as informed on the different ballot initiatives, which is fine. And so I was walking her through the ballot initiative to basically tie Colorado's electoral college votes to the national popular the vote. national popular, yeah. And I've been putting a lot of thought to that, right? Because at the end of the day, I think what we're reckoning with now is that there's two institutions in this country that like are significantly favoring one population over another, right? And it's the US, U.S. Senate and the Electoral College. Obviously, the Supreme Court is uh, basically, uh, no, it's obviously not an extension of the Senate, but the Supreme Court is formed because of the Senate, right? Like the Senate approves whoever the executive brings on board. And so I think at the end of the day, regardless of how, if the, the Supreme Court is reformed, there has to be a reform to the Senate or to the Electoral College, right? Because at the end of the day, it's almost like you're doubling down on an unfair advantage for a very for the same group of people through both of those institutions. And so this might go counter to like the progressive thought, right? But I would be fine if we either add Senate seats to actually one enfranchise voters in Guam, Puerto Rico, Washington, DC, or or leave that alone, but reform the Electoral College, right? To actually elect the person that wins the popular vote nationally, right? Because obviously that would have turned how many elections and how many elections in the last how many years, right? And how many um, uh, decades has that happened where the popular vote isn't what we follow? I would, I would actually argue that the Democrats should do both. If, yeah. if, they, I mean, have, this, yeah. if they have the House, the Senate <laughs> and the presidency say, you know what? We're creating states. We're going to do it now. Uh, it's too long that people in Puerto Rico haven't really got their voices heard. It's way too right. long. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was uh, walking Nelson, who's another contributor on the podcast, through that ballot initiative today. And that was one of his concerns was rural states. And I was like, look, the Senate already takes care of the rural state concern. Yeah. And so we have we have latitude to move with the Electoral College. And I understand possibly like being concerned about that and if we move to a popular vote obviously uh things are gonna rejigger a little bit towards the uh urban areas but like like you said marco we have doubled down in our consideration of small states and rural areas and that is providing outcomes that have been bad for a large swath of our population and so it's it's a it's a rebalancing yeah it needs to happen. It's a it's a it's a holdover from two hundred years ago, and yeah. it's it's a holdover from the three fifths compromise and not allowing black people 
to not be yep. slaves. That's what yep. the Electoral College was built out of. And we're still living with that today because the South refused to join the Union then. And basically, we haven't fixed it since then because we don't think that there's going to be enough state support for it. But what I, w- what I will say is that, you know, the one good thing about a national popular vote is that it makes people in states that are classically the other color from you vote matter more. Yeah, because it, it makes there are more Republicans in California than there are in eight voting states combined that go red every right. year, <laughs> and their yep. votes don't mean shit in California. <laughs> they well, do. <laughs> and you also uh, the one of the things I was explaining to Nelson is that the electoral college distance disadvantages states that are not close. And that's a Republican problem and a Democratic problem. And one of the things you can see is the fires in on the West Coast. The even if there was a Democratic president, I would argue that that would be getting less attention than maybe it should be getting because they're not close. Right. Those three states are not close. And so I think you would you would see a little bit more focus on issues that are important in states that are not competitive and i think that's a good thing for more americans yeah yeah i would agree but this is my humble opinion you know as an undocumented immigrant 100 percent yeah i i like i like the uh undocumented immigrants and also let's let's give votes to felons give them back their yeah Uh, i really i really like that as well yeah as we were saying this is proposition 113 for those of you listening uh in case you haven't read it or voted yet you better vote but um this just ties into the the whole conversation of lack of accurate representation and uh i i'll admit it i voted yes on it you know i did too yeah i think it's better than what we have although i would i'd vote yes if i could yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I do understand concerns about yeah. it. Yeah. So. Well, um, that that was a fascinating conversation, and it's great to hear uh, from somebody who is a documented American and is also studying this quite passionately. So, Marco, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, Marco. Yeah, yeah Marco, I am. Um... I think what you're doing is heroic, and I I don't mean to be like hyperbolic about that. I I legitimately do. Um, I really appreciate it, and you're the kind of person that the American story is built on, and it's 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 just really fantastic to have you on the podcast. Yeah, yeah no, I appreciate you guys inviting me to join uh, today. I obviously appreciate the the very nice the very nice uh, compliments. Um, but again, I think like the reason I am so outspoken, right, is because it's this recognition of, I know, I obviously don't know, I don't have the lived experience as to why my parents decided to come to this country, but clearly that lived experience was so dire, right? That living as an undocumented person in America was better than what they had back, back home. Um, and I think that that's like, what I try to convey to people through being outspoken as to like why we as documented Americans like deserve rights, why we are your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers, and why that's important and how we play into the community fabric. And so really to tie all of that up again, appreciation for you all for bringing me on board, but then also reminding folks who are listening to this podcast, right? That like at the end of the day, your vote is very consequential, obviously in matters that impact your life, but in matters that impact the community around you, right? Which ultimately impacts you directly as well. Big time. Yeah. 
and we would not be what we are, who we are, where we are without our community and each other. There you go. Fuck yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Marco, and uh, Godspeed, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. my entire life to be described as amateur plus also by the way (laughs) (laughs) i feel like everything that i do is amateur plus we should we should put that on a t-shirt i bet no we we really should